In this interview, we're going to meet a NICU nurse with a heart of gold. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. She has spent her career caring for newborns and their families, first in her native California and now in Boston at Mass General Brigham Hospital. She's also the mother of a daughter and also of twin boys who were born prematurely and later diagnosed with autism. It is this life-changing experience that led today's guest to found a charity called Raising Hearts, and they are creating community, connection, education, and support to families with neurodiverse and autistic children and their siblings. Her name is Candace Hartford, and this is her story. Candace, welcome to the show. Two candies today. I know. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> you and your husband were eager to start a family. And yes. in 2015, you gave birth to these twin boys prematurely. Take us back to your delivery at 33 weeks with Keaton and Grady. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, I will say that they were born at my hospital. So I knew going into it as I was having twins, their delivery was a surprise. I had a beautiful pregnancy. Everything was lovely. I knew there was a chance they'd be premature. I was in there getting monitored. And while I was being monitored, they both had this D-cell, which in the nursing world we call when their heart rates dip. And so... My husband was not with me. I was wearing flip-flops and a pair of jean shorts, and I remember getting ready to leave to come home. And before you knew it, I had an IV in my arm and oxygen on my face, and I could not remember how to call my husband because I was scared and shocked, and I couldn't remember how to use my phone. The doctor called my husband. Luckily, he was able to make it. And I also knew that my friends were going to be there in the NICU, in the delivery itself, what is it like to be in that situation as a NICU nurse? Suddenly you're surrounded by your own team and you have completely switched yep. from where you're normally looking over the mom. Now you're the mom being looked over by your own team. Yes. I mean, it's a catch-22 because I knew so much. You know, I knew all of the possibilities, all of the things that can go wrong. So I knew as a NICU nurse, this is serious and these babies need to come out. But as a parent, I also knew I'm in good hands. I'm not the nurse right now. My husband's right here. It's going to be fine. The best thing I can do is be calm. So I took a deep breath, and I remember them just in time, the doctor saying, we can't hear baby B's heart rate. We can't hear his heart rate. We need to get this epidural in right now. And it went in, and before you knew it, they were out. What kind of care did the boys require when they were born? And tell me about that moment. Did they lay them on your chest? So they were born by C-section. So my boys are Keaton and Grady, and Keaton was baby A. He was always the one that moved the most. He was the wild child in my belly, whereas Grady was always the calm one. We call him chill baby Grady. And when they both came out, they both were screaming. So I knew right away, okay, they're fine. Like, ultimately, they're active. They're moving. That's one of the things we always look for. So they were small. They were needing to grow while they were in the NICU, but they did not require much oxygen. I remember Keaton had something called CPAP, which is to keep their lungs kind of open just for 24 hours. And Grady never received oxygen. And he was my concerning one, the one they couldn't find the heart rate for. Tell me how you bonded with them. Oh, my God. From the moment they were born. I picked up Grady and I just brought him to me and opened him up. And he was only three pounds. And he had this tiny little cry. He sounded like a cat. And... Again, to me, like, he just seemed so perfect and 
totally fine. But of course, my husband was thinking, oh, my God, he's so small. He's so small. And Keaton, too. Keaton was wrapped up for a little bit longer, but I loved being in the NICU these three weeks. My husband and I bonded so much in that time, and it definitely changed me as a nurse because I'll never forget holding both of them at the same time, and I'll never forget them sucking on my fingers and just their little noises, and I was so surreal that these are my babies. And now when I have other twin mamas, my first thing is let's get these kids together. You have to put them on your chest together It's because it's such a beautiful feeling. Tell me about the day you brought your babies home. Well, I first brought Keaton home. He came home first. He was a little bit bigger. He was, I think, 315 was his weight. He came home, I think, like three weeks later, and then Grady the next day. Looking at pictures now, they were so, so tiny. Let's talk about how you discovered that Grady and then Keaton were autistic. What were the early signs, or was it just your mama radar? That's a great question. I would say, honestly, that Grady was initially, when I first met him, I looked at him. He was so calm and so sweet. But when I did look at him, he was kind of blank. And I didn't read much into it at the time. But I remember specifically telling my nurse friend, Melissa, gosh, he might need a neuro workup. It was kind of a joke between us because he was just kind of there, but not necessarily super crying a lot, whereas Keaton was you know, your typical baby. He was crying when he wanted to eat when his diaper was changed. And Grady just seemed slow motion. In hindsight, looking to see that he was a little bit too calm, I guess. They had early intervention right away just because of their prematurity. And I am so grateful for that because I I didn't have to be the nurse anymore. I could actually be the mom. And they kind of guided me. Grady needed help with physical therapy, with occupational therapy, because he was slow to sit. He was slow to roll. He also was Came home super tiny, but gained weight very fast. And so then it was hard for him to move his big body. I remember them always telling me, well, they're premature and they have to catch up. But in my mind, I knew it's a little bit more than that. But it wasn't anything that told me autism yet. It was just, let's be on top of this. When you received that first diagnosis, what was your reaction and how old was he? So Grady was diagnosed first and he's my more severe one, but he's my more textbook autistic child. He was the one that was flipping something back and forth and repeatedly doing something. So that was kind of the signs that I saw the most. Um, It was at our 12-month NICU follow-up clinic appointment. I knew the doctor that I worked with, and I said, I think this is autism. And I wanted to prepare her for what I was thinking. And then on the way home from that appointment, she called me and said, I want to prepare you for a letter you're going to get home in the mail, and it's going to be a yucky one. And it's going to say a lot of scary things in there, but I need to have this letter in order for you to get the ability to get tested for autism. When I got that first appointment, which was the earliest they say a diagnosis is about 18 months, I was literally in there at 17 months. And although I knew the answer, I will never forget the feeling of hearing he has autism because it sucked the wind out of me because I felt sad for him. I cried for weeks looking at him, thinking about what a different life he was going to have. I didn't know what it was going to look like. One thing that stuck out to me was the doctor saying, your first goal is to get him to kindergarten. Wow. Soon after that, your second child is diagnosed with autism and you are pregnant with your third child Mm -hmm. at the same time. How did you handle all that? You kind of pull your bootstraps up in that moment. I'm actually 
so grateful that I didn't know that Keaton had autism until I was pregnant because I think a lot of people that have autistic children question whether or not they should have more children because there's a likelihood or a possibility that their additional children could also be on the spectrum. And I would not change a thing for anything. Our daughter is like the glue, the buddy, the built-in peer, and she helps my boys in so many ways. Keaton was differently diagnosed, though, so he was totally physically normal. He was physically meeting his milestones. He was definitely having more eye contact. When I called his name, he would look at me, all those typical kind of things. He did not point, which is one of the typical questions they ask if your child is being tested for autism, do they point? But he was a soft call, so I actually sought his diagnosis out because he was speech delayed. At the age of two, he hadn't said anything. His first words were counting to 10 in the bathtub, but he had never said mom. He had never said data, but he counted. And in order for him to attend the integrated preschool with his brother, he would have to have a diagnosis that allowed him to go. And so I was able to find a physician, and she did agree. He had mild autism, but firmly thought that with additional therapy, he could potentially outgrow it. When your boys were newly diagnosed, what did the doctors tell you about getting support? They said Grady's first goal was to get to kindergarten, and what I needed to do was go and get as many ABA hours, which is applied behavior analysis. There's your hours. You get therapy hours. And they basically told me, find the place that gives you the most. They required and suggested 25 hours a week for my then two-and-a-half-year-old. So my life changed then, right, going from being a nurse to I'm, I'm going to be home for this. And once they turned three years old, then they went to preschool and got those ABA hours in the afternoon. Was there a moment... Candace, when you said to yourself, you know what, my boys need more and I need people that I can talk to about this. Was there a time when you said, I got to do something here? Oh, gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I spent so many hours like crying, feeling isolated. You grieve the process, right? It's a process that you have to go through. I'm in a different place now that the boys are seven, but I can easily go back to those times where my friends that I was close with Our babies were all the same age, and we were all doing the same things. And eventually, those kids start to move on, and your kid stays behind. And there's this intense isolation. And no matter how much your friends that have typical children want to be supportive, you need to have someone that understands your life that's going through it the same way. So the aha moment was when I reached out to Early Intervention and my ABA providers and said, here's my phone number. Can you please pass it around to anyone around here that will take it, any of your other clients? And they all said they could not because of HIPAA. And that was the first roadblock. And I go, this isn't right. We have NICU moms groups. Where is my support group? And while there were a few peppered support groups in a clinical setting, I really wanted someone to come over with their coffee and cry with me today. Or a glass of wine after dinner. Or a bowl of wine, yes. (laughs) A bowl. (laughs) Describe the mission of Raising Hearts and walk us through what you offer, not just to the children, but the parents and their siblings. This is RaisingHearts.org. So Raising Hearts is actually evolving as we speak. It is something that is for the whole family. And I think that's an important point is that 
There's a lot of outlets and things for autistic children right now. There are a lot of activities and events, but what's really important is for inclusion so that uh, we have events for typical kids and neurotypical children so that they can all learn to be together and understand each other's differences. It allows for children to like my boys, to imitate the typical ones. And it allows for kids like my daughter to have a better compassion and understanding about those that don't have the same skill set. We provide support groups for children. And one of the biggest things for me is our parent mentorship program. So that's just starting, and we are going to be connecting not just moms, but also dads, so caretakers, with each other on a one-to-one basis so that You kind of talk shop. What's going on in your local area? What are the best therapists? What doctors do you like? What medications do you need to be on? What, you know, holistic nutritionists do you go to? And this is going to be able to provide people with information that they don't have access to until they have a diagnosis. So right now, in order to have therapy at all, you need to have a diagnosis. And guess what? It takes almost a year and a half sometimes to get that appointment. And then it takes a year and a half to get therapy. You also talk about the fact that you serve children who are neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Again, we don't need to have a diagnosis to be part of Raising Hearts. There's a lot of kids that might have just sensory processing issues. They don't have a diagnosis. Maybe they just struggle with auditory processing, which is you know having a hard time processing information that they hear. We have kids that have dyslexia, kids that you know just learn differently and maybe don't necessarily fit in the box of normal. I think neurodiversity has really kind of changed in a lot of ways. People are more understanding about what neurodiversity is, and a lot more people are now identifying as neurodiverse. I don't want anyone to feel like I did where it was, you're alone, go do your thing, and you have no one to be around. This is about community, about no judgment, about learning together and walking the journey together. You are a California girl, born in Los Angeles, raised near Pasadena. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your family. Got a big smile on your face when you talk about California. Oh, I'm so proud to be from California. I love it there. I grew up there in a place called San Gabriel, California, and went all the way through high school in Temple City. So that's right outside of Pasadena. I went to San Diego State for nursing school and then went back up to Pasadena to start my career at Huntington Memorial Hospital. And that's where I started in the NICU. Both my parents have passed away, and I think that's part of why Raising Hearts was so important because I didn't have family that Mm. really I could tap into when my little babies were diagnosed. My mom was still here at the time but was ill, and my dad had passed away. So I think it was important to, like, build family that wasn't there. But California is always part of my heart. I moved here as a travel nurse when I was 29 and totally thought I would not stay. I thought, I'm just going to do a stint and go back home. It's too cold here for a (laughs) California girl. (laughs) Everyone always looks at me like, how did you stay? But I honestly love it here. What was the vibe like in your house when you were growing up? Strict parents, easygoing, walk us through it. I had a totally non-traditional, I guess, um, upbringing. I want to say like in California, it's just a little less traditional, right? So both my parents, actually, they weren't married. I grew up with both parents being present in my life, but they were not together. So I had this great kind of experience personally where my dad gave me a lot, a lot of confidence. I felt very stable and safe. He was so routine. Whereas my mom, you know, she was 
always telling me to go and do things and don't let anything stop me. But she was more like me mentally. She was more like hyperactive. or <laughs> she, she was always so scattered. Like my mom never, ever in her life watched a movie with me because she couldn't sit down. And now I am the same way. <laughs> it's interesting. There comes a time in your life where you look in the mirror and you go, I am my mother. I am my mother <laughs> in so many ways. Yes. Describe the values that each of them taught you. My mom was a great mom. She was completely selfless, but also very strong. She taught me to be positive, to never let anything stop me, and also to never depend on anybody. And I think that kind of made me not fall apart. You were awarded a coveted internship after San Diego State University, getting your degree in nursing. You were at the Mayo Clinic after graduation. Tell us all about that time in your life. That was such an exciting time. I mean, this was something that was awarded to two people in the whole state of California. And I don't know that I've ever won anything before, but this was an opportunity for me to leave California. My sister drove me to Minnesota. I actually didn't get to choose where I was going to be in the hospital. So I was in same-day surgery, which was not labor and delivery, and that was not NICU. I got to take care of people that were Mennonites, Amish. I got to take care of people from all over the world that were dealing with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I mean, it was definitely kind of maybe the first time I got that little itch to see things outside of my little bubble of Pasadena. What led you to working in the NICU in your specialty? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're a caregiver and, and you love babies, but what is it about this particular specialty? It's such a niche and it is so mine. My actual nursing program had a NICU opportunity. So you could choose between ICU adults, PICU, which is pediatrics, or NICU. And NICU scared me to death. So guess what? I did NICU. And that was my first realization that I had found what I want to do. You started at Huntington Memorial Hospital in Pasadena in the neonatal ICU. If you can, close your eyes. Take us back to your first day on the job as a nurse? I think I, sh- I was shaking in my boots. I was just about months. to ask you, are you shaking at this time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by the way, you guys, she is closing her eyes. Yes. Continue. So I had never done this. So I was pretty much faking it till you're making it. <laughs> I think that anything that scared me, I always felt like I needed to do it. And so I had to deal with incredible, scary situations, meet with different doctors that scared me too. I learned really early to be strong, to be resilient, to adjust quickly. And it was a a magical time there. I was there for five years and did some of the most incredible things that I'd never imagined I could get through. When you were a traveling nurse, did you get a chance to work all across the country? And by the way, what does that entail when you're a traveling nurse? Oh, my gosh. It's the best experience. I think I always recommend it to newer nurses after they have some experience is to go. You just kind of see not just what's going on in the rest of the country or world, but you get to experience what other hospitals, what they're like, what their policies are like. You have a better understanding of why you're doing the things you're doing. You do not take orders and just do what you're told. Nurses 100% are the, the brains kind of making sure that's the right call before we act on it. So this allowed me to see what other places do and to kind of question things a little bit more. You accepted a permanent position in 2009 at Mass General, one of the top hospitals in our nation, in the NICU. It sounds to me like this was a dream job opportunity for you. Tell us about your team. I can't say enough about the Mass General Brigham's NICU. We are family. 
we are very close. It's a small unit, which I like. It's a 21-bed unit. So we really take care of very acutely sick babies. Some of the less acute babies go to another unit upstairs. So we're kind of always an adrenaline rush kind of group. You have to be close. You have to know what someone's thinking before they're doing it. And we are a very well-oiled team. This is probably one of the most collaborative NICUs I've ever worked at where you feel like your voice as a nurse is heard. And we all work so well together. I'm sure there have been some incredible stories of tiny, itsy-bitsy little babies that, with your love and care and the care of your team, have survived. I can't even put that into words, the experiences we've all had together. We've all cried together. We've laughed together. We've taken care of babies that have gotten their wings, as we call it. What does that mean? So when babies pass to heaven, we say they've gotten their wings. What's that like for a nurse? It's profound. I mean, it never is the same. You get very attached to these babies and their families. You get so attached to wanting so bad for this baby to do well. It's a profound honor to do it, to be there in those moments when only one person is maybe having to hold a baby and give them to their parent for the last time. It certainly puts perspective on my life when I come home to my babies and I do think to myself, it's just autism. I remember my first loss. It was in Pasadena also. And... I remember doing compressions on a baby until the mom could come, and I was close with her, and I was a newer nurse, so I was nervous, and obviously we had a lot of people helping, but it was my first time going through the emotions of actively seeing this happen, and I remember walking away when it was over and not making it out of the hallway before I started crying and just feeling like I had to hold it together, and I just couldn't. And now I see the young nurses that go through it in my unit, and I think it's, like I said, it's just something that only certain people can understand because they've gone through it with you. It's, it's something you'll never forget. Were you mentored early in your career, and why is mentoring so important to you? Oh, it's so important to me because, you know, as a nurse, they have that saying, they eat their young. And I had a lot of experience early on when I was doing med surge, and they absolutely did. But when I started my NICU rotation— My nurse mentor was amazing. She completely relaxed me in a sense of here I am in the NICU that was one of the most intense situations I'd been in at that time. And she would come in with wet hair and she was always a little bit disheveled. And we'd have this very intense case, but she was so like she was a hippy dippy woman and it changed everything. I love to mentor people because it's so valuable to have someone to take you under their wing whether it's in nursing or as a parent, and say it's going to be okay. And I know personally that if someone gives you a a chance, you're just going to fly. Next few questions we ask everybody who sits where you are, Candace, and thank you again for being so candid and telling us your stories. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I don't think of it as an obstacle. I think of it as an opportunity. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received, and can you pass that along to our listeners today? Don't take no for an answer. Giving back, creating a community of parents who have neurodiverse children and autistic children where there was none. That's what you've done. It's a lot of work, and your plate has always been full. Why is this your passion and your mission? This is my life. I have two boys that are wildly different, and I have this beautiful daughter that depend on having a beautiful community around them that supports them and accepts them for who they are. And I want other families to have that same opportunity. 
right now in this chapter of your life? What does success mean to you? How do you define it, Candace? I think success is waking up every day and having something that fills your cup. And my definition of success has obviously changed as I've gotten older. It used to be a monetary thing or, you know, where I lived. And now it's absolutely not. It's being able to truly feel like you're in the right spot and being content. I want to say thank you so much for being a guest on The Story Behind Her Success. Thank you. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Candace Hartford, founder of Raising Hearts, 501c3 nonprofit organization devoted to creating community for parents and neurodiverse and autistic children and their siblings. Find out more about this very special heart-filled charity at Raising Hearts and spell it H-A-R-T-S dot org. Follow them on Facebook at Raising Hearts. I am always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you know someone I should feature on the show, will you please let me know? I really do read your emails. And many of the women who are on this program have been suggested by people just like you. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it. 